We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa on Parshas Shemos. The first drasha is about the story when Hashem appears to Moshe and he gives him the mission to go save the Jews. So Moshe has a whole conversation with Hashem and there's a number of strange midrashim that the Hamedrish Vahamasa is going to explain. The Torah records that Moshe says, Mi anochi ki Who am I that I should be appointed? And he has two requests of Hashem. He wants a sign so that the people will believe that he's actually the messenger of Hashem. And he also asks to know the name of Hashem. So the Medrash records that at that moment, Moshe was looking into his affairs. So this is unclear. And then he asks Hashem to tell him his name. What is Hashem's name? So Hashem answers, when I'm judging people, I'm Elohim. And when I'm fighting against the wicked, I'm Tzivakos. And then he adds, Eke Asher Eke, I will be who I will be. So according to the Medrash, Right now they're dealing with bricks and mortar and they're going to be dealing eventually also with bricks and mortar. So this whole Medrash requires explanation. Then Moshe continues and he says that he's not a natural speaker. So Hashem says, I will be with you. So according to the Medrash, it means that Hashem will shoot words into his mouth like an arrow. Or the other explanation is that Moshe is going to be like recreated as a new being. So again, all of this requires explanation. Then Moshe asks Hashem to send someone else instead and Hashem gets angry. So the Gemara and Rashi records this, records a debate whether there was a lasting effect to the fact that Hashem was angry or not. So again, that also requires explanation. So to explain this, the Hamedrash Vahamaset wants to understand what is the whole concept that's recorded in this story that Moshe keeps refusing to take on this mission, this leadership role that Hashem is giving him? Up to the point where the Medrash says, Zayin Yamim Moshe, that Hashem was trying to convince Moshe to take on this role for seven days. So this whole thing requires explanation. Why is Moshe so hesitant to take on the leadership? And what does it mean that Hashem has to convince him? And in addition to that, Hashem only gets angry at the last argument of Moshe when he says, send someone else. But he's not angry at all the earlier arguments when Moshe says, they won't believe me and I want to know your name. So why does Hashem suddenly get angry only at the final argument that Moshe makes? So to explain all this, the Hamedrash Vahamaseh goes to the Haftorah, which according to the Sfardim is the first chapter of Yirmiyahu. So the Navi is told, B'terem that before he was even born, Hashem had already chosen him for this prophetic mission. He is going to be a prophet for all the nations, not just the Jews. So this is a similar story to the Parsha in the sense that it's Yirmiyahu's first prophecy, the way Moshe receives his first prophecy in this week's Parsha. So now Yirmiyahu, like Moshe, also refuses the prophecy. He says, Aha Hashem, lo yadati daber I'm not well spoken, I'm too young. So again, like Moshe, he doesn't feel worthy for this. And Hashem says to him, don't tell me you're too young. Ki al kol 
Wherever I tell you to go and whoever I tell you to speak to, you're going to go do it. So Hashem repeats that Yirmiyahu's been chosen and he needs to go give his prophecies, which are going to affect the nations, not only the Jews. So Damerush Ramasa explains this conversation between Yirmiyahu and Hashem because the Gemara says, There are four requirements to become a prophet. Wisdom, strength, wealth, and humility. So the first three, wisdom, strength, and wealth, are physical attributes. And those attributes are predetermined, according to the Gemara, before a person is even conceived. So before there's even a fetus, Hashem declares whether this person is going to have those three attributes. As opposed to humility, which is a spiritual attribute, so that the Gemara makes clear that it's up to us. We are responsible for our own spiritual growth. But the Gemara does say something interesting, that there are times when you can tell from the fetus what sort of personality it's going to have. So even though before the fetus is conceived, it's not humble or arrogant, but it is possible that between conception and birth, you can tell whether this fetus is going to be humble or arrogant. So this distinction explains the psukim in Yirmiyahu. Hashem says to him, Before you were even conceived, I knew that you would be a prophet. So that's referring to the first three attributes of wisdom, strength, and wealth. Those Hashem gave Yirmiyahu even before his fetus was created. And before you were born, you were sanctified. So that refers to the fourth character trait of humility that it was not possible to know before Yirmiyahu was conceived. But between his conception and his birth, while he was a fetus, Hashem saw that he would be humble. So then he sanctified him as a prophet. So this is a very cute explanation. He says that it might have come from his grandfather, Rab Moshe Yitzchak Halevi, to explain these psukim in Yirmiyahu and the way they're phrased. But says the Amerush Vamasa, why are these psukim stated specifically regarding the Navi Yirmiyahu? These would be true regarding any Navi. So why does the Navi specifically record this idea when it comes to Yirmiyahu? What was unique about Yirmiyahu's prophecy that connected with this whole idea? So to explain these psukim in the Parsha and the Haftorah, the Hamedrash Vamasa says that we have to understand what is the point of nevuah of prophecy. And in many ways, the prophecy of Moshe in this week's Parsha is the beginning of all prophecy in Jewish history. Yes, the Avos did have earlier prophecies, but the prophecy that Moshe gets in this week's Parsha and the mission that comes with it is really the beginning of what we call Nevuah in Jewish history. So we have to understand what is the meaning of a Navi when we talk about these great leaders in Jewish history. So to explain this concept, the Hamedrash Vahamasa analyzes the relationship between Eliyahu and his main student Elisha. 
And the basic point that he makes is that to be a prophet, a Navi, it's not enough to just be a tzaddik. We think of someone who's a Navi as someone who's incredibly righteous, and that is true, but it's not the only requirement to be a Navi. There is a second aspect which is needed. There is a list in the Gemara of the various character traits which will bring someone to Ruach HaKodesh to get this divine insight. And this list is the basis of the Mesilus Yasharim. He describes how to accomplish each step. So if someone follows all of the discussion and the ladder of the Mesilus Yasharim and they incorporate all these good attributes in their life, so that person will get Ruach HaKodesh. They will have insight into what is going to happen in the world in the future. But that's still not a Navi. Of course, that's a requirement to be a Navi. So all of these prophets that we're talking about, Moshe, Eliyahu, Elisha, Yonah, of course, they went through that process and they developed all those good attributes. But that is still not enough. That only brings them to have Ruach HaKodesh. A Navi is someone who also has a position of communal leadership. So the people look to this person as someone who has insight and prophecy. It's not enough to just have a private prophecy, but the people have to trust this person. They have to know that this person does know what's going to be coming. And the people look to them and listen to them when they make a statement about what is going to happen in the future. So those are the two elements of a Navi. On the one hand, great personal piety. And on the other hand, a broad, wide following with authority within the Jewish nation. Now, communal leadership does not just come automatically. People have to earn it and they have to have the right personality in order to play that role within the community. So they have to be very worldly and sharp. They have to be perceptive and be able to read people well. They have to be brave. So there are all sorts of qualities which are necessary in addition to personal piety for a Navi to be a proper communal leader with a following. So that's why we find with the great Nevi'im, like for example, Eliyahu, that he's able to be flexible and to adapt his response to what's necessary at that moment. So sometimes he stands up to the king Ahav, who's very wicked, and that's a very brave thing to do. On the other hand, sometimes he's obedient to Ahav, and sometimes he rebukes the people. On the other hand, he's very loving towards those who are doing the right thing. So he knows how to respond properly in different situations, which call for a different type of response. And that's what makes him not only a private Navi, someone who has his own Ruach HaKodesh, but a communal leader with a wide following. Now, the Gemara says that there were many other prophets at the time of Eliyahu, but their prophecy was not recorded because it was not needed for future generations. It was only temporary prophecies for their own times. As opposed to Eliyahu's prophecies, which are recorded because they're historically significant for all future generations of Jews. So says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, maybe the distinction here is exactly what he's saying. These other prophets who are contemporaries of Eliyahu were great tzaddikim, so they had Ruach HaKodesh and they did get prophecy, but they didn't have the communal leadership element that Eliyahu had. 
he was not only a great tzaddik, but also a very wise communal leader. So that's why he's more historically significant than his contemporary prophets. So that's the essential qualities of a Navi. Someone who combines great personal piety, they're a great tzaddik, along with tremendous communal leadership and insight, and they know how to exercise their authority properly. Now, this is true of all the Nevi'im, but says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, it's especially true about Yirmiyahu Hanavi, because of all the Nevi'im, Yirmiyahu Hanavi was given the hardest task because the people did not want to hear his message. And they do all sorts of terrible things to him. They throw him in jail. They refuse to listen to him. Yirmiyahu suffers all sorts of abuse at the hands of the people because they're wicked and they don't want to hear his message. So Yirmiyahu had to be not only a great tzaddik, which of course he was to be a prophet on that level, but he also had to have a lot of political savvy. He had to be a statesman and to figure out how to exercise his leadership in a way which would be most effective when the people are totally rejecting and rebelling against his message. So Yirmiyahu stands for the epitome of this type of Navi who not only is a great tzaddik, but also knows how to fight in a political sense, who's very worldly, who knows how to be able to get his message across under very difficult circumstances. So that's why he, of all the Nevi'im, gets this special message from Hashem, where Hashem says to him, I know that you're able to handle this. This is a very difficult task, but I know that you have the personal qualities and the political insight to be able to be an effective communal leader, even with all of these difficulties. So that's what Hashem means when he says specifically to Yirmiyahu that you are worthy for this task, even from before you were born. It's not only that Yirmiyahu is a tzaddik, but also that he has the political statesman qualities to be able to do this. But Yirmiyahu is still worried about it because he's a gentle person. He's a Talmud Chacham. He's humble. He just wanted to spend his life in quiet spiritual pursuits. He didn't want to be fighting politically with all sorts of people. So Yirmiyahu is still hesitant to take on this position knowing that it's going to involve all sorts of difficult and draining political battles to get the message across. So Hashem emphasizes that he's going to support Yirmiyahu and he's going to give him the words to speak. So it's not going to be Yirmiyahu on his own fighting these fights, but Hashem is going to be giving him the language and teaching him how to properly communicate his message so that it will be effective. So with Hashem's support, Yirmiyahu is going to be able to accomplish his mission. But even so, Yirmiyahu has a very difficult time and the people don't want to listen. And there's all sorts of difficulties that he encounters in the process of giving over over his message. And in general, of all the Nevi'im, Yirmiyahu has the most tragic circumstances with the most tragic message that basically were at the moment of destruction and the people still don't listen to him. Now, Yirmiyahu had other contemporaries, Nevi'im, Tzfanya, and Hulda, who were also prophesizing, but they had a different message, even though they're at the same period, but they are prophesizing more upbeat 
optimistic prophecies. So unlike Yirmiyahu, whose mission was to get in the trenches and to fight with the evildoers and to try to get them to change their ways, so Tzfanya and Hulda were given a quote-unquote easier mission to give optimistic prophecies about how things would be better in the future. So it's not that these prophets were disagreeing with each other, but they had different missions in terms of what they were supposed to communicate to the people. Now, Moshe, as the first and greatest of the prophets, so he combined all the qualities that all these future prophets would have. And he spoke to the people, he gave them messages which were optimistic and pessimistic. He combined worldly wisdom and spiritual greatness. Moshe was able to combine everything in order to give the ultimate truth to the Jewish people. So now this will explain the questions that Moshe asks when Hashem first gives him his mission. Moshe has four reasons why he's hesitant. Number one, he doesn't consider himself a great enough tzaddik to take on this mission. Number two, he doesn't believe that he has enough worldly wisdom to get all of the Jewish people to agree that he's going to be the leader. Number three, which is related to that, is he wants to know what is the message that Hashem is sending him to give the Jewish people. Is it a positive one? Is it a negative one? And number four, he doesn't think that he has the speaking skills that are necessary to accomplish this complex mission. So those are the questions Moshe asks Hashem. First, he says, Mi anochi. I don't think that I have the personal righteousness for this leadership role. So Hashem answers that, Ki imcha. I am with you. So it's irrelevant whether you, Moshe, are on the proper level or not because Hashem is with you. So of course you have the authority now to do this. Then Moshe asks Hashem, what is your name? So he's asking, what is the message that I'm supposed to deliver to the people? Is it a good one or is it a hard one? So that's what the Medrash means that that Moshe was assessing his affairs. In other words, Moshe is asking, what is my message as a prophet going to be? Is it an easy one or is it a hard one? So Hashem answers, I have different messages. Sometimes I judge people, so then I'm Elohim. Sometimes I fight against wicked people, so then I'm Tzivakos. In other words, Hashem is telling him it's not going to be just one consistent message, either good or bad, but times are going to change. At times I'm going to appear in one way, and at other times I have a different message for you. And then Hashem says, right now they're dealing with bricks and mortars, and in the future they're also going to be dealing that. So Hashem again is saying that things shift, they don't always stay the same. So once Moshe hears that, now that raises a third question. Since this is going to be a more complicated mission and times are going to change and Moshe's message is going to change, so now Moshe asks Hashem, I'm worried they won't believe me, meaning how am I going to have the political skill to make sure that everyone follows my leadership even when things are changing? 
So on that, Hashem gives him the signs, meaning Hashem is going to give signals that Moshe is his messenger in the world, so the people will listen and follow Moshe's lead. Now Moshe comes with the fourth and final question that he doesn't think he has the speaking skills to be able to communicate with the nuance that's necessary in these complicated situations. So to that, Hashem answers the same way that he answered Yirmiyahu, that he is going to give Moshe the language that's necessary. So it's not going to be Moshe's job to come up with the words, but Hashem will give him the necessary language and therefore he'll be successful. So that's what the Medrash says, that it's like Hashem shot the words into his mouth like an arrow or that Hashem created Moshe anew, meaning Hashem is saying, even though you don't have the necessary speaking skills for this mission, but I am going to provide that and with my support, you'll be successful. So that was how Hashem answered all of Moshe's concern. But the thing about all these answers is that he's not saying that Moshe naturally has the necessary leadership qualities. Hashem's just saying that I'll help you make up for whatever you're missing. So that's why Moshe now says, Shlach tishlach. Why don't you choose someone else? It's not that I naturally have the necessary leadership skills. It's just that Hashem is going to help me. So you could choose anyone and help them be successful with the mission. So that's why Hashem gets angry. Even though Moshe is expressing his great humility, but Hashem just explained to him that he is the chosen leader. So now Hashem gets upset because Moshe is not asking a specific question about how he's going to accomplish his goal, but he's just telling Hashem to choose someone else. So now there's a debate in the Gemara whether there was a lasting consequence for Hashem's anger in this case. So Damedrash Vamasa explains that this debate is the same as another debate in the Gemara, whether a leader should have a little tiny bit of arrogance or none at all. Meaning, is there a small tiny amount of arrogance which is necessary for leadership or can someone be a successful leader and be fully 100% humble? So says that Medrash Vamasa, it's the same debate here. Moshe is totally humble. So according to one view in the Gemara, that was a good thing. Yes, Hashem had to shut down the conversation, but he wasn't really angry. Whereas according to the other view, Moshe needed to be a tiny bit more arrogant. So that's why Hashem actually was angry. Now, the real answer to Moshe's question is that Hashem did not just randomly select Moshe, but he had all sorts of unbelievable leadership qualities of wisdom and piety, all sorts of things that others did not have. And the Gemara goes on and on about how great Moshe was even before he got these great qualities of prophecy. Moshe was an unbelievable person and that is why Hashem had chosen him to begin with because only he would have been able to carry out this incredibly important mission of freeing the Jewish people and giving them the Torah. So Moshe was the necessary messenger for Hashem. So Moshe in his humility thought that Hashem was just choosing him and he could have chosen someone else, but really Moshe had that rare combination of incredible personal piety as well as worldly skills to be able to carry out this incredibly monumental, incredibly important project. So that's the explanation for the leadership qualities of Moshe and Yirmiyahu and Eliyahu and these other great Nevi'im that they were able to combine personal piety. They were great.
great tzaddikim, as well as great communal leaders, they had the ability to be flexible and to act in different situations depending on what was needed. They were perceptive. They were able to read the crowd and the moment and to make political decisions that would allow the people to hear their message, to follow their leadership. And that's the combination of skills which is necessary for someone to be an effective Navi. And of course, the Ahmed Rishvah says that even though we don't have Nevi'im anymore, we don't have prophecy, but we still require that sort of leadership. We still have people who are tremendous tzaddikim and Talmidei Chachamim who also combine a worldly wisdom and an ability to function in communities to be able to get their message out and gather the people around their leadership. So those are the qualities that are necessary for Torah leadership. And the Amedrish Vamasa adds in the middle of this drasha also another nice insight about this, that at times you have a guttle who seems like he's disconnected from political leadership. He's just sitting by himself, pursuing his own Torah learning, his own spiritual growth. He doesn't seem to have anything to do with the broader community. But then when there's a vacuum of leadership, when the current Torah leadership dies, so this person will suddenly step into the role that they're needed for and suddenly they reveal that they do have all those sorts of political qualities which are necessary in order to also be able to lead people and to get their Torah message out more widely. So that's the first drasha. Now the second drasha has to do with the story where Moshe sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew and he kills him and then Dustin and Aviram see it and then they use that against Moshe. So a According to the Gemara, we have the first sin of Dustin and Aviram, and they're going to be the bad guys throughout Moshe's career. The Gemara says that whatever sins people do, we try to attribute to Dustin and Aviram. Now, Moshe says, and Rashi quotes this Medrash, that because Dustin and Aviram are speaking Lashon Hara, they're spreading what Moshe did, so that's exactly why the Jews are enslaved. Moshe couldn't understand why the Jews were being punished, but once he saw the Lashon Hara, so then he understood. Now, at the end of the Parsha, after Moshe returns and his initial efforts to free the Jews are not successful, so he begins complaining to Hashem that he hasn't saved them. So the Medrash records a debate about what exactly he was saying. And according to Rabbi Akiva, he was saying that I understand, Hashem, you will save the Jews in the future, but why don't you save them now? You don't care about the Jews who are being put into the buildings. So we have to understand what that means. And according to the Gemara, there was some punishment for Moshe because of this, that he was not able to go into the land of Israel. So again, we have to understand what the connection is. So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains this whole story based on something that he said earlier in Sefer Bereshis, that there was a difference between Paro and Avimelech. And Paro, even though he was a wicked dictator who oppressed the Jews, but he liked to present it as if he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just following the rules of the land and the Jews deserved what they got. So he didn't like to portray himself as a lawless king who just does whatever he wants, but he would always use the law and manipulate it to be able to do his evil things. So that's why, according to the Hamedrash Vahamasa, he never enslaved Shevet Levi. They were free as if to say, it's not that we're against all the Jews. This tribe of Levi is okay, so we let them be free, but the rest of the Jews deserve to be enslaved. So Paro was always trying to justify his evil deeds. Now, says that Medrash 
Hamasa, we see throughout Jewish history that whenever the anti-Semites try to divide the Jews, so they say these Jews are going to be oppressed, but a different group of Jews are going to be close with us, we're going to be nice to them. So the Jews that they're treating well, unfortunately, very often look down on the Jews who are being mistreated, and they try to cozy up with the anti-Semitic authorities so that the Jews who are being treated well won't lose their privilege. So instead of standing up for their fellow Jews who are being oppressed, the privileged Jews turn on the other Jews and start to blame them for their oppression so that they can curry favor with the authorities. Says the Amedrish Vamasa an unbelievable thing, that in this situation, Shevet Levi defied the expectations. The Levium did not turn on the other Jews and start to look down on them, but the opposite. They always felt connected and stood up for the enslaved Jews, even though they were the privileged and free ones. So that's why Moshe, the great defender of the Jews, comes from the tribe of Levi because he was raised in that environment where you don't look down on the other Jews, but the opposite. You use your privilege to try to help them. So that was the exact debate between Moshe and Dasan Vaviram. Moshe sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew, and he of course stands up for the Jew, even though Moshe had a privileged life and he could have ignored the suffering of this Jew. But the opposite, Moshe stands up for the Jew and he kills the Egyptian. But then when Dus and Vaviram are fighting, so Moshe comes over and he says, Lama takereyecha, why are you hitting your friend? In other words, Moshe sees all Jews as equal. Every Jew is his reecha, his neighbor, vahaftal reecha kamocha. And then Dasan responds, Mi sam Who made you the authority? Who made you in charge of us? So the implication is that Moshe is using his privilege to look down on the enslaved Jews. So that's the debate. Moshe is saying that even though I have privilege, I am part of the Jewish people and I care for every Jew equally. And Dasan is saying to Moshe, you're not really one of us. You're just a privileged, free Levy Jew who looks down on the rest of us and thinks you're better. Now, Moshe's answer to this is now I understand why the Jews are enslaved. So what he means to say, according to the Hamedrash Vahamasa, is that we all understand that physically hurting or killing someone is a terrible sin. But we don't often understand that using words, even though it seems like it's nothing, but using words to cause damage can be just as deadly or even worse. But those are the types of sins that people underestimate because it looks like someone's just saying words. So how bad could this be? But often they can cause incredible, even deadly damage. So that's what Moshe is trying to say. Moshe understood why the Jews were enslaved because Hashem had decreed, he had told Avraham that they would be enslaved. So Moshe knew all of that. But Moshe was bothered by a different question. Even if Hashem decreed that the Jews should be enslaved, but why didn't the Jews group together and stand up for themselves and at least make things better for themselves? It didn't have to be that bad because the Jews as a group could have advocated for themselves. Says Moshe, now I see that there's infighting amongst the Jews. They're speaking 
thinking badly about each other. And the basic political prerequisite for a group getting together and bettering their lives is that there should be unity. Everyone has to work together. If people are at each other's throats and they're bad-mouthing each other, so then the group loses its power to advocate for themselves. Says Moshe, now I understand why this slavery is so bad for the Jews, because not only did Hashem decree that they would be enslaved, but they don't function as a group. There's no unity. They badmouth each other. They speak Lashon Hara. So they can't better their situation using the power of a group. So that explains what the Gemara is trying to say, that Dasan and Aviram are responsible for all the bad things that happen later on in the stories because they are the prototype of people who speak Lashon Hara, who create fighting amongst the Jewish people, and that brings all the bad things that happen. So Dasan and Aviram and their type, the people who speak Lashon Hara and cause disunity, are responsible for the future problems that are going to happen. So that's why Moshe decides to leave, because he figures there's nothing more I can really accomplish here. The Jews are not ready to be redeemed. They're not getting along with each other. So he decides to just leave and go to Midian. Now, years later, Hashem appears to Moshe in Midian, and he says, you are going to be the messenger to take out the Jews. So Moshe assumed that the reason Hashem is taking the Jews out now is because they're finally ready to be redeemed. They want to be redeemed, and they're willing to follow Moshe's leadership in order to be freed. So that's why Moshe goes back. But when he gets there, he's surprised to see that some of the Jews resent his leadership. They're not ready to leave yet. So Moshe is very perplexed. Why would there be Jews who are not ready to leave when they're being enslaved and oppressed and they have such a difficult life? So why would anyone want to stay and not follow Moshe out? So these are all the questions that are bothering Moshe and that's why he turns to Hashem and he starts to ask him, what is the point of this slavery in Egypt? If it's to punish the Jewish people to better them, because of course Hashem is not just trying to hurt people, he's trying to do the best for them because he loves them. So Hashem is trying to help the Jewish people the same way the Nevi'im would rebuke the Jews, so Hashem is also rebuking them. Says Moshe, but it's not fair. Why should Paro benefit from this? Why did the Jews have to suffer and Paro gets to benefit? Says Moshe, maybe there's an additional reason for the slavery, which is for Hashem to show that he is the ruler of the whole world. Well, says Moshe, that's not working because from the time you sent me, things are getting even worse for the Jews. They're not getting better. So Paro is not acknowledging that you are the king of the world. The opposite, Paro is not listening to you. So those are Moshe's two questions. And then Moshe continues and he says, I know that you Hashem are always doing the good for the Jews. So of course you're trying to help them in this situation. But what is the point of freeing people who don't want to be freed? If there are Jews who want to stay as slaves, so why bother freeing them? And that's what Rabbi Akiva means in the Medrash, Vadai Tatzel. I know that you, Hashem, are going to save the Jews. But what do you care about the people who are in the buildings? In other words, the people whose whole mindset loves being enslaved, they want to continue in this situation. So why, Hashem, do we have to free them? But the 
truth is that Moshe was making a big mistake because the point of Hashem freeing the Jews was not only to save them from the oppression, it was to bring them to Israel and to make them the Jewish people. So Moshe was making a fundamental mistake that Hashem was not only going to free the Jews and then leave them be once they were no longer in crisis, Hashem was trying to free the Jews to be his nation and to give them the Torah and bring them to Israel. So that's why the Gemara links Moshe's complaint with him not going into Israel. Hashem says to Moshe, if you think that the whole purpose of the Exodus is just to free the Jews and then drop them there, so you're not going to go into Israel. The purpose of the Exodus, what I'm doing right now, is so that the Jews should be freed and become my nation and go into Israel. So even if they don't want it, even if they don't fully understand it right now, even if Paro is not listening, it's all part of the ultimate plan that I'll bring the Jews to Israel and they'll become the Jewish people and have their whole history ahead of them. So that's the second drusha explaining the connection between Moshe and Dasan and Aviram's argument and Dasan and Aviram as the sinners who spread Lashon Hara amongst the Jews and how that relates to Moshe's complaints at the end of the Parsha. Now, the halacha section has to do with the halacha of annulling a vow which someone made to someone else. So the Gemara derives from the story of Moshe that Hashem said to Moshe, you need to annul your vow not to return to Egypt. Moshe had vowed to Yisro that he would not return to Egypt. And Rashi says, because there were people, Dustin and Aviram, who were trying to kill him. So before Hashem could send Moshe on the mission, to free the Jews, Moshe needed to annul the vow and he couldn't do so without Yisro's permission. So we see from here that if someone makes a vow to someone else, they can't annul it without that person's permission. Now, the Ramah rules that if it's for a mitzvah, so let's say someone makes a vow to someone else and now they need to annul it to do a mitzvah, so then you are allowed to annul it even without the person knowing. But the Shach quotes from the Rivash a question on this view from the whole story of Moshe. Moshe is going to do the ultimate mitzvah. Hashem is sending him to free the Jews and still he was not allowed to annul his vow to Yisro without Yisro knowing about it. So you see that even for a mitzvah, it seems that you're not allowed to annul the vow to someone else without their permission. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, this debate as to whether you're allowed to annul a vow for a mitzvah depends on the two reasons in the Yerushalmi for this halacha. One is because of chashad. The person who was benefiting from this vow is not going to know that it was annulled and they're going to suspect that the other person is just simply violating their vow. So let's say Moshe annulled the vow without Yisro knowing about it and then he goes back to Mitzrayim. Yisro would think that Moshe violated his vow. So that's one problem. The other reason is because of embarrassment. We want the person to have to be embarrassed that they are annulling their vow that they made towards this other person. So for example, we want Moshe to be embarrassed to have to annul the vow he made to Yisro, and that will prevent people from annulling vows. Now, says that Medrash Vamasa, if the point is to embarrass the person so they don't do it, so then it makes sense that for a mitzvah, we wouldn't want that to be the case because we want them to annul 
annul the vow. So it makes sense that a mitzvah is an exception to the regular halacha. But if the point is chashad, that the person will suspect they're doing the wrong thing, so then even for a mitzvah, you can't create a situation where it looks like you're doing the wrong thing. So that would be the view of the Rivash, that even for a mitzvah, you cannot annul a vow without the person knowing about it. Now, if we come to the story of Moshe and Yisro, so according to Rashi, Yisro wanted Moshe to stay in Midian because people were threatening his life in Mitzrayim. So if that was the reason for the vow, so when Hashem came to Moshe and he said, the people who are trying to get you killed died, which according to the Gemara really means that they became poor, so they had no influence. But once the danger to Moshe was was no longer relevant, so the whole vow didn't really apply. So according to the view that we want the person to be embarrassed and not annul their vow, why did the whole halacha apply in this story at all? Because Yisro didn't care any longer if Moshe returned to Egypt. Once they knew that those people had lost all influence and there was no danger for Moshe to return to Egypt, so there's no reason not to annul the vow. So says that Medrash Vamasa in the story of Yisro, the only problem was Chashad, that Yisro would think that Moshe is violating the vow. But there was no problem of Busha that were trying to prevent Moshe from annulling the vow. So since Yisro was happy for the vow to be annulled, when Hashem told Moshe to make sure to tell Yisro, he didn't mean to get Yisro's permission. He meant to just tell him to inform Yisro that Moshe was going to annul the vow so Yisro would know that Moshe was following the rules and not violating the vow. So this is a very important distinction between getting the person's permission versus informing them even if they don't agree. So now the Hamedrash Vahamasa applies this back to the Halacha. There is a debate whether you need to get the person's permission to agree to annul the vow or to inform them. Now, in the case of Yisro, nobody thinks that Moshe needed permission because Yisro was happy for Moshe to return to Egypt now that there was no danger. So he only needed to inform Yisro. So that's what the Ramah is trying to say, that for a mitzvah, you don't need to get the person's permission. You only need to inform them, which is exactly what Moshe did in this case because it involves a mitzvah. As opposed to for non-mitzvah reasons, if you're going to annul a vow for someone else, then you need to get their permission, which will cause some embarrassment and hopefully prevent the person from annulling their vow and instead they'll fulfill their vow. So that makes sense of this halacha and the practical ramifications are that when the Ramah said that for the sake of a mitzvah, you don't need to tell the person, he didn't mean you don't need to tell them at all. He meant you don't need to get their permission, but you do need to inform them so they won't suspect the person of violating their vow.